Welcome to LaGrave CRC's Sermon Podcast. This Sunday, Reverend Christy Mannion will begin our new sermon series called Apocalyptic Advent. Good morning. We're beginning a new series called Apocalyptic Advent this morning, and when I did a survey of my household about the meaning of apocalyptic, some strange answers came forward. So I thought we might take a minute to just think about that together today. Apocalyptic just means revealing, peeling the lid off of the reality that we see versus the reality that God sees. So this Advent, we'll be trying to orient ourselves to the ultimate concerns of God's reign. During the next four weeks, we will be sitting with different New Testament passages that point us to the reality of God's kingdom. First come when Jesus was born, and anticipated again when he returns as king. And so if you have been enjoying the coziness of the start of the Christmas season, a little too much turkey, some good warm socks, hot tea, your comfies watching football, Today, coming in in the rain and starting to read the Advent story through the lens of John the Baptist might be a bit jarring, but that's where we begin. So we start this morning in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. It's on page 1503 in the Bibles in front of you. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent! for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey and people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, and confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John the Baptist is a firebrand preacher. It's part of his job description. Wanted, the position posting had read, a prophet who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah must be willing to endure heat and cold, to live in lonely places, and speak truth to power. 
singular devotion to the Lord required, half-hearted applicants need not apply. Please note, this is a volunteer position. Uniform provided. Room and board are the responsibility of the applicant. And somewhat unbelievably, John answers that summons. Zechariah and Elizabeth's son has grown up to adulthood in the spirit that has been upon him from God since before he was born, brings him out to take his place in the Judean desert. And John's unique ministry to the people of Israel takes him far beyond the synagogue. He's out there in the wilderness preaching and baptizing, and he's not just washing converts coming into Judaism. He's washing everybody for repentance before God. Because everybody, John says, needs to get ready. John, like other heralds in human history, is announcing the incoming of something that cannot be stopped. It's an invasion of sorts. The time to warn people is now so that they can get ready. They have some decisions that need to be made. And so John's main message is simple and urgent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the people come from everywhere around, the scripture says, and to demonstrate their heart change, they submit themselves to baptizing, washing in the Jordan River. That baptism, when they come up out of it and they're soaking wet in full view of all the crowds that have come out, that baptism marks them. They are now identifiable as people who have taken a public stand for the change that they say they're welcoming. The crowds streaming out to the desert are so sizable that the religious authorities in Jerusalem decide they better make a trip out to the desert and see what's happening. John is not convinced that their interest is sincere. You snake spawn, he says to them, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce keep fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't start saying to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. The reason for John's stern message is the re reality bigger than anyone else can see that God's kingdom is coming, and it's here. It's coming in like a freight train, and if you are not ready, the impact will hurt. God's holy and powerful presence has always been dangerous. And the era so long awaited is here. The king that all Israel has stood on tiptoe watching and waiting for has come. And so John says, repent. In Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is near. All four Gospels introduce the ministry of Jesus through this lens of firebrand preaching from John the Baptist. And I'm thinking to myself, this morning, you don't get to hear John 
you get to hear this word through me. And I think that if John were standing here, the whole experience might be a bit more stressful for most of us. In his memoir, Where the Light Fell, Philip Yancey describes an experience from summer camp when he was growing up. He writes this. Friday night is the camp's final shot at converting the unconverted and heating up the lukewarm. We're all tired. We're sunburned. We're aware that soon we will return to homes without swimming pools and foosball, and that school will soon take over our lives. In a word, we are vulnerable. When the time comes, Yancey continues, for the altar call, the pastor takes over. We start singing, Just As I Am, and after the first verse, he asks, Maybe you've held out all week, determined not to give in, but friend, are you ready to meet your maker? Why wait? You never know what tomorrow may bring. Before long, fully two-thirds of the audience has come forward to kneel at the front. Nancy describes the people streaming forward, those who are coming to rededicate their lives to Jesus, those who are saying they'd like to go into full-time ministry. Finally, he continues, the clincher. I have one last invitation. Any of you with unconfessed sin in your life, any sin at all, God is calling you to come forward and to confess. A careless word, perhaps, a flash of anger, a laziness in your spiritual life. The stream of campers becomes a river. Then Yancey says this. This is my sixth straight week at camp. Every other week I've gone forward at the final service, but tonight, tonight my soul is calloused. Eventually, only two of us remained standing in the large auditorium. I edged closer to my friend, friend Rodney for moral support. Fellow campers kneeling down in the front turn around and glare at us in irritation because we are delaying the late night round of refreshments. I don't know, Rodney, I whisper. I can't think of any sins tonight. Can you? No unconfessed ones, he says. And so the two of us hold out until at last the speaker gives up, says the closing prayer, and calls it a night. Yancey's story there paints a picture of the discomfort that some of us have with firebrand preaching. We worry that at best it capitalizes on people's emotional state. At worst, it manipulates that emotional state for its own ends, even assuming the very best of intentions, that the person speaking is perfectly sincere, perfectly convinced that the kingdom of God is a big deal and it matters a lot, what if, unknowingly, that person's preaching runs roughshod over the work of the Spirit of God in an individual person's life? Those concerns can be matched from the other side with a different concern. What if the person preaching in the name of God is so understated and gentle that people don't hear the urgency of God's good news? Because it's true. God's kingdom has come. It is coming. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And we better be ready. Not warning people would be unkind. 
So how do you hear John's firebrand preaching? Are you suspicious and guarded? Do you welcome it, eager for the enemies of God to receive his justice? When we read this, it's important for us to notice who is in the crosshairs of John's saltiest, strongest language. It isn't the average Israelite or Roman citizen coming out into the desert. In Matthew, John reserves his most pointed rebuke for people who should know better. Israel's religious leaders. And so when we worry about abuses of power in God's name, there's some comfort in seeing that the people that John calls to repent most pointedly are the ones that are responsible for helping other people find the way to God. That gave me something to ponder this week. Because John has choice words for the religious leaders, the people who take God's law, their personal piety, the tradition the most seriously. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are the ones who draw his anger. John's message for them means that the obstacles that need to be moved out of the way for the coming of the Lord aren't, first of all, out there in the surrounding world. The obstacles are already there in the, in the insiders. The churchy people are the ones who get the strongest warnings. To the people of God inclined to approach God half-heartedly, hoping that he'll help us get to where we want to go, hoping that he'll keep us safe and comfortable on our own terms, John says, Who warned you to get fire insurance? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. To leaders and church members inclined to rest on their inherited faith or on their insider status, John says, Oh no, don't start to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Produce fruit in your lives that show, that shows that your faith is living. Repent, for God's kingdom has come near. When you think of repentance, maybe you think of times of corporate confession that we have here every Sunday at the beginning of the service. Or maybe you think about godly sadness or a sense of guilt over something that you've done or something that you've failed to do. Maybe you think of the longing that rises up in you when you see the state of the world and you wish that everyone would turn around and look for God. Those things are part of the picture of repentance, but there's something else to look at too. Repentance means changing our minds and our behavior when we're faced with new information. It's a turning around in our relationship with God. It's not just feeling sorry, although that's not a bad thing. It's the change that we make with God and with each other too. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? How can I make this right? Repentance is the signal that we give that we're willing to cooperate with God. When we turn around, it changes us. It can change our relationships. It spills over into the communities that we occupy. 
And it's a lifelong dance in our interaction with God. What reason does John give for repentance? He says it's because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the kingdom of heaven simply means, in Matthew, God's reign, God's realm, the, way thing, the place anywhere where things are the way that God the king wants them to be. John had a vision of this that outstripped anybody else's. Fleming Rutledge, an Episcopal priest and best-selling author, describes it this way. John the Baptist's whole being, his entire existence, was on fire with the reality of the one who comes. He was in the grip of this vision, the vision given to the church that sees through the appearance of this world to the blazing power and holiness of the coming of the Lord. John the Baptist is the ultimate embodiment of the apocalyptic character of Christian faith. Faith that is oriented not to the past, but to the future, not to the repetition of religious exercises, but to the person of the Messiah. Not to arrangements as they are, but to an utterly new authority and dominion. Because when Jesus comes, the sharp boundary lines between heaven the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth start to blur. The rules of engagement between sinful people and a holy God are transformed as the holy God takes the place of the sinful people. The kingdom of God being at hand is good news. The reason for the, the repentance isn't simply the fear of judgment and punishment, the just judgments of God show us our need for saving. At the end of the day, John knows the baptism that he preaches is inadequate to save the people from their sins. I baptize you with water for repentance, he says, but after me comes someone more powerful than I am. The, th the sandals of whom I am not worthy to carry he himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm just the warm-up act, John says. It's Jesus himself who saves. Jesus himself will actually accomplish this work of washing you inside and out. Jesus himself will endure the baptism of the just punishment that you deserve. Jesus himself will submit to the alienation from God that you fear. After all, Jesus himself is the only one called Savior. He will save his people from their sins. Imagine a parent who is working in the yard, trimming a hedge, watching a toddler play nearby, and the parent knows that it, the street represents danger. And so the parent's keeping one eye on the hedge trimmer and one eye on the kid. And first, dad says, come on back, bud. You're getting a little too far away. But Nathan's just two. He turns and he looks at dad and he kind of smirks a little bit and he keeps running in the opposite direction. Nathan, dad says, the road is dangerous. Cars, 
stop. Finally, Dad will drop those pruning shears and sprint over to the edge of the yard into the path of oncoming traffic if Nathan doesn't turn around. He will scoop him up, he will bring him back home, and he will take the risk to endanger his own life. And when that story is told to Nathan throughout his life, he will absorb more and more each day how much dad loves him. And the goodness of his dad's life-endangering love will call out of Nathan an echo of love in return. Our response to Jesus' coming, to the inbreaking kingdom of God, to such a momentous change in the fabric of history, is to begin a lifetime of answering love for our Savior. So as we turn our faces and our feet toward our God in repentance, we do that standing on a path not strewn with all kinds of obstacles that we can't move, but on a highway paved by our Savior. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we do not deserve such love, and yet you shower it on us anyway. Help us to live as people who are looking for your kingdom, who welcome it gladly, because we look forward to the day when you make all things new, including us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching LaGrave CRC's Sermon Podcast. 